It's the Messiah Community Radio Talk Show. This is Michael James Lauren, your host. We're going to talk about the workforce and what goes on. It's worse than you think sometimes. Uh, Disciplined Minds is the name of the book, a critical look at salary professionals and the soul-battering system that shapes their lives. A very special book, and the author is with us, Dr. Jeff Schmidt. He joins us. Welcome. Hey, thanks, Michael. Great to be here. Our sponsors with over 90 years experience in developing audio electronics. Bayer Dynamics stands for innovative audio products with the highest sound quality and pioneering technology. Two business divisions, consumer and installation, provide tailored solutions for professional and private users. All products are developed in Germany and primarily manufactured by hand. From headphones to microphones and conference and interpretation systems. For more information, please visit north-america.bearedynamic.com. And by Vocal Booth to Go carries a complete line of products and accessories specifically designed for voiceover actors, audio professionals, podcasters, producers, and studio owners to help them get professional results for their clients. It's your go-to place for sound treatment, soundproofing, portable, and mobile vocal booths. Visit vocalboothtogo.com for more information. And by Hamilton Stands, founded in 1883 in Hamilton, Ohio, Hamilton Stands is the oldest music and instrument stand maker in the world. They offer a broad range of sheet music stands, band and orchestra instrument stands, and combo stands, including mic stands, guitar and keyboard stands, and accessories. In fact, the broadcast you're listening to is made using a Hamilton stage rocker mic stand. Visit HamiltonStands.com. And Oralex Acoustics has one mission, to make you sound your best. Thousands of satisfied Oralex customers have experienced improved acoustics, along with free expert advice, total sound control products from Oralex. Enjoy widespread use among prominent artists, producers, engineers, and corporations worldwide. Remember, it's not your gear, it's the room. Visit Oralex.com for more information. And great audio starts with great gear. And Zoom's 30-year reputation promises quality and affordability. Visit zoom-na.com today for recorders, audio interfaces, effects pedals, and more. We're Zoom, and we're for creators. Dr. Schmidt was an editor at Physics Today magazine. He has a PhD in physics from the University of California, Irvine, and has taught in the United States, Central America, and Africa. Born and raised in Los Angeles, he now lives in Washington, D.C. So I want to ask you that. First of all, I saw you on Roku, okay? I'm watching Roku, and, and there's, there's a wonderful documentary. I'm sure you get a lot of attention for this called The Lottery of, the, of Birth. Isn't that correct? Oh, yeah, that uh, movie, The Lottery of Birth. The Lottery of Birth, and you're on quite frequently. They, you know, uh, you really got my attention and and, uh, I think America's attention, certainly, in your book because I think that people can go through life uh, in, as you say, the soul-battering system of the workforce and not really know what happened. I mean, can you imagine an entire lifetime and not really know, like being hit by a hurricane, wondering something doesn't feel right all the time. You even mentioned in your book where people are on the subway, no one's talking to each other, no one's looking at each other, and something is wrong as far as the development of, of the human soul or nature when it comes to work. Why has this gone so wrong and uh, what kind of responses have you gotten about your book? Well, uh, you're right. Uh, something was wrong, and uh, I didn't know exactly what it was. Um, what was bothering me was I really got fed up with uh, butt kissers at work. <laughs> I, I hope it's okay to use that term yeah. on your radio program. <laughs> uh, especially the well-educated ones, the salaried professionals. 
these people would never express an opinion that might displease the people above them in the workplace hierarchy. No matter what the issue, you could count on that. <laughs> and later I realized that the bosses did count on that. They expected their professionals to be politically subordinate experts, not independent thinkers. So what what bothered me was that I found that people who were hired to do creative work were not independent thinkers. And uh, this led me to uh, look into it more deeply and write, write the book. On most jobs, I did find a tiny minority of independent thinkers in a vast sea of spineless intellectual workers. <laughs> <laughs> and when I went back to school to go through professional training myself, uh, in physics, that's when I discovered that these intellectually and politically subordinate individuals are deliberately produced. And seeing that is what motivated me to start writing Disciplined Minds. Yeah, I mean, this has become a staple, this book, Disciplined Minds. Again, a critical look at salaried professionals and the soul-battering system that shapes their lives. And we let that happen, though, don't we? I mean, we let other people, we make other people rich right? And companies and you just do one job, you kind of mentioned that you're not to know the big picture. And it's almost set up that way that you don't know that you just stick with one role, you do it over and over again. Um, a lot of times purposely, they won't even talk to people who are under, you know, the uh, subordinates. And because they don't, they don't want them to be a part of the whole big picture. I mean, why, why is that? Eh? Why is there such a, um, a meddling with um, I, the human condition? Well, what I discovered, the, the basic reason behind that is that work is an inherently political activity. It is not a nonpartisan exercise of technical skill. Uh, the, the product of professional labor is political. And this contradicts the prevailing view which is that technical work is not necessarily partisan, but is often corrupted by politics. In fact, if you read the Dilbert comic strip, work is always corrupted by politics. But what I say is that it's actually inherently political. And when I say work is political, I mean it affects the distribution of power in society. The work of salaried professionals is politically sensitive because it involves decision-making in which their employer's interests are at stake. Thus, the product of professional labor is political. It, it takes sides. A journalist's angle on a story, and the accountant's bookkeeping decision, the lawyer's choice of contract language, the historian's depiction of events, the minister's sermon, the teacher's lesson, the welfare worker's finding, even the speechwriter's joke, professional work tilts one way or the other, and the way it tilts is never an accident. The professional is someone employers or funding agencies can trust to tilt in the right direction, to act in a way that is, call it uh, politically correct from the employer's point of view. I've always had a problem with that. I mean, it's always ended poorly. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Because I've always felt, well, I'm not political. I'm not, I'm not able to do that. And you even mentioned that if you dare try to have a, a relationship or friendship, I should say, really, with someone who's above you, 
uh, far above you, you're asking for trouble because the pendulum is is not equal. I mean, you have to kind of know who you are in a sense in the pecking order and play this kind of game like uh, like Survivor, if you will. But I'm sure there are plenty of people who've been liberated by your book and freed because, uh, I mean, there are no courses in school starting out about how to be an entrepreneur and start your own business. So we're not always just meant to be a cog in a wheel, are we? Uh, no, we're not. And that, that accounts for a lot of the conflict in the workplace because people uh, don't go along with it all the time. <laughs> they go along with it too much of the time, I complain, but not all of the time. Dr. Schmidt, your story is interesting because, you know, you were an editor at Physics Today. Life is looking good for you, but, you know, you weren't satisfied with just uh, keeping the status quo. You, um, you know, you were, how can I say, a commentator on life, if you will, and you noticed things weren't in order. So had that been festering you in you a long time before you wrote the book? Uh, yes, yes, indeed. The, the lack of workplace democracy uh, was, was a problem all along. Um, you would have a staff meeting where collectively the staff might have, you know, a hundred years of experience if you add it all up. And uh, yet the boss who might have 10 years of experience <laughs> was making the decisions because it wasn't, wasn't democratic. So yeah, there were a lot of things that bothered me, but I hadn't really put it all together in, in a, uh, you know, a comprehensive big picture of what to figure out what was going on in that case. When that happens, people blame it on personalities. They say, oh, my boss has this, you know, quirk or terrible personality or peculiarity, whatever. But really, these problems are inherent in the hierarchical system, the lack of democracy. I think you mentioned, too, about the kind of the psychology that if someone were to hold you hostage, let's just say, like in a bank, and keep you there for a very, very long time, and then afterwards, you know, you come out alive, let's just say, and, and someone asks you about the person who, who held you up, and you're not likely to talk poorly about that person. And the reason is because the psychology is that, you know, you had been, if you will, abused or suppressed or oppressed, but... Uh, uh, it, it's amazing. <laughs> you mentioned this in the in that movie, uh, the Lottery of Birth, that you know you can sell things and meet the needs of the company, but yet you you don't believe at all the product could be a CRAP. <laughs> <laughs> you you mentioned that, and that, uh, but we do that all day long. How we how we try to meet the needs of people, but yet we don't fully believe. And what we're doing, and, and therefore, in a sense, I don't think that people are fully actualized and, and not happy. They're, that's where the soul battering comes in. Yeah, ex exactly true. And um, I encourage people to question not just the wages and working conditions, but the actual product that they are assigned to develop. And this, this does happen once in a while. Like uh, there are workers at Google, for example, right now who are. Uh, questioning whether Google should be developing sensor, censored, uh, a censored search engine for China. Uh, they say censorship is wrong and uh, we shouldn't be doing that. You know, I know yes. you're paying me a lot of 
money as a Google employee to do my assigned work, but I question the assignment. So I think that's what we need more of. We need to encourage employees to question the assignments. You know, if we can go back to high school, people say, you know, things change once you're out of high school. It's not true. You know, <laughs> the, the whole political system, it stays the same. I mean, for people who know how to flock and integrate and adapt and, and play this political game, right? It starts in high school. People who get it and then they get it all the way through life. And then there are others who just don't get that, you know, and um, I never got it and uh, understood how that whole thing works. It seems like you say that schools get it very early. In fact, uh, preparatory academies will teach you that this is the way life is and prepare you for that. And you talk about that uh, graduate schools are very harsh on people trying to prepare them for the way that life works uh, this way. And so um, do people really know what they're doing, these people who abuse their power? Uh, yes, they do. They do know what they're doing. And you're right about high school being uh, the same as life in general, it, it's designed to be that way. It's designed to prepare people for life in general. What's some of the resolutions here that you present in your book of Disciplined Minds? Once again, a critical look at salaried professionals and the soul-battering system that shapes their lives. And so how do we dismantle this? Not only that, I'm, I, <laughs> I'm sure when you talk about stuff like this, a lot of people uh, rather don't like it. They don't want, it's almost like if you peel behind the curtain, of uh, the, those that are in power, uh, they don't want you to know what you've written in this book. I'm sure it ruffles a few fe uh, feathers. Uh, that's, that's true. It uh, sort of undermines some of the myths that people depend upon to uh, get by day after day. But I think in the long run, it helps to understand what's going on, even if the picture isn't so pleasant, even if it isn't the storybook picture presented in school. I think that admitting that work is an inherently political activity leads to lots of insight and action. First, it, it, it explains why there's so much job dissatisfaction and burnout. Yes. The disillusionment comes when employers succeed in dictating the political orientation of your work, which is really dictating who you are in your work and therefore who you are in society because your work is your biggest interaction with society. I mean, you probably don't have another project that you spend eight or more hours a day on. So if the bosses are dictating the political content of that work, they're really defining who you are in the world, and that can lead to dissatisfaction. I, I, it should lead to dissatisfaction. And also, recognizing the political nature of work allows you to understand why professional training is so abusive. Like graduate school is a repressive intellectual boot camp emphasizing conformity hmm. because it attempts to break individuals into playing a politically subordinate role to get them ready for employment. So professional education, like professional employment, is best understood as a battle for the very identity of the individual. Uh, I guess in popular culture, we know that uh, medical school and law school, those have reputations for being abusive, but really all professional training is. And uh, 
Third, I would say that if you admit that your work is inherently political, then you end up looking at your job in a different way because you are a political operative, whether you like it or not. <laughs> so true. I remember I was part of a, a company and I, I remember saying to this young kid, I said, you know, why are they hiring everybody like 23 years old? And he was like 23 years old, you know? Yeah. And yeah. he looked at me like I had just uh, given out a, um, a, you know, to the KGB or something. I mean, I just <laughs> sort of like, how could you say that, you know? And I'm just, I was just being honest about it. And, uh, but he he looked at me like you can't say that because um, uh, you can't talk openly and honestly. It's you have to get in line and uh, keep your mouth shut. Yeah, yeah. You you were saying they were hiring young people because they're more uh, moldable, maybe. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Maybe uh, that's said to be the reason the military tries to get the youngest people they can get. I mean, there's a real psychology behind this. How did you go from, is there a relationship between physics and the psychology of this, or is this just uh, any relationship at all? Well, it's not really physics. It's any, any profession. But what was surprising was that it appeared in physics just as much as in any other field. You would think that physics is just uh, technical stuff dictated by nature, but when you get into physics graduate school, you see the whole uh, abusive operation going there where the uh, professors are not to be questioned or you question them at your own risk. Right. And uh, you have to do stuff that you don't really necessarily uh, understand thoroughly. You have to memorize it for the test, so that gets you used to doing assigned work. Uh, the, the whole uh, operation of uh, indoctrination and discipline comes into effect in physics just as much as in any other field. Yes, that's interesting. You mentioned that when, you know, people think that they're going into a company and they're, you know, oh, goody, there's training and all that, and maybe they'll bring in lunch, but... Little do they know that um, what's happening is they're being brainwashed, really, in a sense. And in other words, you, you mentioned that they're becoming, they're being stripped of who they were, and they're being indoctrinated into a new them, a new person, the, the kind of person the company wants them to be. And that's very important as far as these trainings, when they, they begin to kind of like <laughs> put a new groove in your mind so that you learn how to be the kind of person they want you to be. Is that fair? Is it fair to the individuals, you mean? Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess they have the right, right, to do training, but what, what's really going on in, in that process? Well, people do what they can get away with. I don't know if, I mean, you could call it unfair that they're doing what they can get away with. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't talk about it in terms of fair or unfair. I would maybe talk about it in terms of right or wrong. It's wrong to rob somebody of their creative role in the world and make them a, a clone. But uh, yeah, you, you were right to mention brainwashing. My interviews with students when I was writing this book revealed that the high pressure, all consuming graduate school programs share many essential features with the process that people call brainwashing. 
I thought it would be interesting to find a real brainwashing resistance manual and see if it might be of any use <laughs> to graduate students. And uh, as you probably saw in the book, I did find one issued by the military, and it turned out to be right on target. So in the book, I say that the United States Army issued a survival manual for graduate school. Uh, the, the field manual was actually written to show soldiers how to resist brainwashing and exploitation as prisoners of war. But the principles of resistance that it lays out apply to all repressive systems, including hierarchical workplaces hmm. and professional training programs. According to the manual, organizing is the key to resistance and survival with your values intact. So organizing is also key to surviving professional education and employment as an independent thinker. You can't, you can't do it alone. You have to try to search out some like-minded people and work with them to maintain a, uh, an area a safe space, if you want to call it, where you can openly express your views, something that gives you a break from the repressive atmosphere of the institution. Yeah, it just doesn't make people nice. Some people really play the game. Boy, do they ever, you know, and they're willing to sell out friends, family, uh, exactly. whomever, you know, just right. to be able to be political, just to be able to, you know, it's like this game of survival. It seems like it's the lowest form of the human condition, if you will. Yeah, you know? yeah. Th those are the people who drove me nuts and drove me to write this book. Yeah. Well, I've experienced that. Oh, my goodness. And I have ADHD. So that oh. is not a, a friendly, you're not friends with any workplace when you have them. People <laughs> they don't like that at all. I mean, you know, they don't want to know my views on anything. They just want me to get stuff done. And, uh, and then they find that you have that and uh, forget it. But you mentioned also discouraging employees. I'm reading from your book from thinking about self-management is not the only political function of the division of labor by making employees easier to replace and by deflating their feeling of accomplishment in their work. The division of labor strips workers of their sense of power in the workplace, discouraging them from challenging management on the way to work uh, is uh, organized. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that, the division of labor is really disempowering for workers. I mean, if you if you're in a workplace and you say something about the big picture, uh, the boss can say, "Well, you don't know the big picture, but I do. Just stick to your job, <laughs> <laughs> your little task that we've carved out for you. Know your place." It's amazing, people. It's it. You know, it reminds me that I guess that little baby elephant. You know, and they talk about this at the circus, and they take some sort of staple and they put it in the elephant's ear, and then when the elephant grows up, and uh, still thinks that uh, they're repressed, that they have, they, they can't uh, find the strength within them. So, uh, I'm sure many people have left work uh, after reading your book, Disciplined Minds, and started thinking, you know what, maybe I I should invest in myself. There's a guy named Seth Godin who's, uh, you know, like one of those entrepreneurial uh, marketing experts, he says, pick yourself, you know, just pick you. And instead uh, of asking some office person, pick me, pick me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, right. right. So um, now where do we go from here as far as uh, the content that you'd like to cover uh, in your book and uh, in your work 
And so have you had, um, you know, other of these type of books in mind or, or is this, and this is in all, a lot of the schools and uh, universities, your book. Right. No, I, I don't have in mind writing any other books. <laughs> it, it, this one took me like two decades to write because I found that I had to rethink a lot of things that I had assumed answers for. When I started thinking about things uh, just to write them down, there were a lot of things that I was just going to write down, not do originally. When I started writing them down, I realized that, wait a minute, this is not right. So I had to rethink a lot of things, though I'm not about to write another book. Um, <laughs> so if we're not somebody's slave, I mean, if I put it very bluntly, if we're not playing the political games mm-hmm. in order to just fall in line and, and really, you know, you are always compromising and bargaining. Uh, a little piece of you is dying in the workplace. Then the more that you don't uh, stand up for your uh, values and belief systems and, and really feel good about yourself, you come home tired and uh, not feeling like you're giving your wife your best or your husband your best and all that sort of thing. So, uh, what what would be three things that you would recommend that that people do in um, in retrospect of of the information in your book? Well, the one big thing I would recommend is the thing that's in the brainwashing resistance manual issued by the army, which is organize. And uh, when you when you are organizing at work, working with fellow workers to make changes in the workplace, even small changes, you, you do get energized. You, you might actually look forward to going to work. <laughs> so um, I, I would say organize, you, you can have an effect, you can make a change. Um, I remember once uh, when my daughter was in elementary school, there was an issue that came up at the school there about, I think it was uniforms, the school, had decided to require the students to wear uniforms. And uh, she didn't like this idea. So I said, well, you could, you could circulate a petition <laughs> at the school, among the students. She was in the fifth grade, I think. <laughs> so she said, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. So she wrote up the petition. And the, the next morning, she was very enthusiastic about going to school. I had never seen her so enthusiastic about going to school. I mean, I had thought that she was okay with it, but I discovered that there was a whole level of enthusiasm that I didn't realize was possible. She was going to actually make a change that day at the school. And and the, the petition was successful in having influence. You mentioned so that's that's what I would recommend organizing. I can give you an I'll give I can give you a little example um, involving religion because I know that you have some connections with religion. Yes, being a Christian, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not religious at all, but I I'll give you just one example of when I was working at a science magazine. I uh, worked organized with other employees to make various changes. One of the things we demanded was participation in hiring of coworkers. Uh, We wanted to be able to 
review resumes, interview applicants, and so on. And uh, I realized that what we should do is hire coworkers on the basis of character, because all the applicants had the technical ability to do the job. This was just science writing. But uh, so we asked the question, what do you stand for? And the idea was to st simply try to find out what the person will fight for, if anything. And the managers themselves were sorting the interviewees by character also. They were looking for so-called team players, which is management's euphemism for people who stand for nothing of their own. <laughs> so uh, we demanded the right to participate in the hiring process and the management back down they gave us the right to do that and we exercised it to the fullest extent uh, so that we got we had that right only for a few months <laughs> because we actually used it but during that time there was an opening for a member of the editorial staff a uh, position like mine and we had a lot of technically qualified applicants one of them was a PhD scientist with editorial experience and a resume showing strong religious values and a history of dedicated social service work known as Christian nonviolence. Now, I'm, I'm not into religion at all, but I immediately wrote a memo to management, not mentioning religion, but recommending this guy, recommending that he be one of the people invited to come in for an interview. He appeared to be one of the few applicants who actually stood for something. Yes. And that made him very different than the typical journalist. The typical discussion at a staff meeting at that magazine was a bunch of highly educated people sitting around a big table like good professionals saying what they think the boss would say if he were speaking. <laughs> and, and the boss himself acknowledge this. I, re I remember, for example, he remained silent during one discussion, and then he said, I've deliberately kept quiet so as not to influence what people had to say. Well, no one else had to worry about exercising such influence, even if they had a lot more experience than the boss. Anyway, I had a fantasy of this religious guy at the magazine staff meeting speaking <laughs> out based on principle after thinking, what would Jesus do? Rather than the usual cynical, unprincipled, <laughs> what would the boss do? Right. But management would have nothing to do with this religious guy. Despite his technical qualifications, they rejected his application outright without even talking to him over the telephone. Wow. How often does that happen, you know? Probably a lot. <laughs> you know, yeah, right. Well, I mean, that's what you're bringing up uh, to light in your book, that there, there are so many exclusionary tactics and things that people, you know, they don't understand. I, I probably don't understand the half of it. So, okay, so on one hand, okay, you start off in life and you want to, you know, be a real person. You want to develop. You have hopes and dreams and you have values. And how easily are you know, we're willing to trade all that in just because on another spectrum, we're willing to please people. You know, we're taught to please mommy and daddy and they do what you're told. 
And so then you go to the workplace and you want to please the boss and you want to, and in, in doing so, yes, slowly but surely, that knife becomes dulled and you're not thinking about work that matters anymore and, and really a purpose and a meaning. Uh, you're at all costs, you want to please the people that you work for and uh, in, you become a different sort of person. There was this movie regarding Henry with mm-hmm. uh, Harrison Ford. And uh, have you ever seen that movie? I have not. Well, you should. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it it's, it's a good movie. It's actually a decent, one of the few, you know, it's a good movie. But, yeah. so, you know, he had amnesia. He was an unscrupulous lawyer, okay? But he had amnesia or something happened to him. And, and rebuilding his life back, he gets with these, uh, you know, lawyers that he used to work with. He's trying to remember his life. And finally, he looked at it with different eyes. And he said, uh, what we're doing is wrong. And the guy looked at him and he says, what we're doing is paying for our lunch. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And I think that whole thing makes people realize that, you know, just money and power and so forth, and uh, they'll regret it. They will regret it because, you know, in that whole developmental process, you can't uh, sell out your values and uh, the things that, um, you know, make a person... I guess, full of, of life. Uh, you know, you just can't do it. Say you're doing socially significant work. That's the one big reason you wanted to become a professional in the workplace, you say. But, and then something happens and it destroys that. And um, it's, it's, you really bring to light how, and then people don't understand what's happening. And that's what's so great about your book. Yeah, yeah. People really need more than money. I mean, you get your salary, but then, you spend it and it's gone. What what do you have to show for what you've done? Nothing. Something they mentioned in the uh, in the movie about that uh, people feel that they've been duped once they realize what is has been happening to them all, all this time. That's that yeah. resonated with me. Yeah, right. And you you don't want to realize you've been duped uh, upon your retirement when it's too late to do anything about it. You want to realize it early on so that you can do something about it, right? So in the movie that I saw, The Lottery of Birth, I saw that in Roku, it's a documentary, uh, and you know, you're one of the, the features in there. Um, it comes to the understanding, once again, of the p- political system. And really... Yes, well, once you realize that your work has a political component, you really look at your job differently. Like in a, in a democracy, everyone is supposed to have an equal say and how society is organized. Everyone is supposed to be politically equal. So if you discover that your work itself is political, that it affects society in some way dictated by your employer, then you have the moral right to assert some control over the political content of that work, over your role in society. In fact, you have a moral duty to critique your employer's ideology. You can't say, I'm just following orders and let your employer shape society by dictating who you are politically. If you're a professional, then the decisions you make in the course of doing your work day after day have much more impact on society than does the vote you cast in an election every few years. You don't let anyone dictate how you vote in elections So you shouldn't just sit there passively and let your employer dictate the politics that guide your work, which is by far your biggest interaction with society. 
Just because your employer has more money than you do doesn't mean that he or she should have more of a say in shaping society. If you find and that you, you don't work, mind me saying, if you don't mind yeah. me saying, it becomes more than just a workplace after a while. It becomes an abusive environment many times. You know, that person who's paying you money, they literally feel like they own you. Yes, they, if they can dictate your role in society, if they can dictate really your life effort, then uh, they might as well own you. Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, you were saying also, forgive me, go ahead. I, you, well, I, I just saying that if you find that your work perpetuates the status quo, which is pretty typical, and you aren't a supporter of the status quo, which is also pretty typical, then you need to do whatever you can to change the political tilt of your work. So you have the moral right and duty to pursue your own agenda at work even though you've been hired to further someone else's agenda. So if you have See, a that's job. Interesting. Or, I find that very interesting. I've always, I've always felt that, <laughs> you know, yeah. but well, you've, you've yeah. probably been seen as insubordinate. Right? Yes, I have. <laughs> I have. Yeah. But, uh, but you have to be, I mean, if you're going to have a real life, you have to be insubordinate. So if you have a job or if you're a student, then you're probably engaged in an, on, an ongoing struggle over how subordinate you will be. So the workplace is a battleground for your very identity, as is graduate school. The issue is who are you going to be? Are you going to pursue your own vision and stand for something? Or are you going to be politically subordinate? Hmm. Boy, I feel like crying. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's like, but, you know, this is how it is. And I wish there was an, an easier way. Um, I'm sure that it's not easy. I'm sure. Well, there's, yeah, there's a way, but it's not easy. Organizing is very difficult. Doing but, your own thing or being an entrepreneur or freelancer doing. Yeah. I mean, you have to, you have to stand well, that, and yeah, start the, that way. And then life has a way of, of, as you say, beating us up, the soul battering that goes on. You start having ideals and, uh, you know, people are told, don't lose those ideals because that's all you have sometimes. Right. Well, doing your own thing or being an independent uh, practitioner of some sort, that's possible, but it's not really practical for most people. I mean, most people are going to work in big organizations. So what I lay out in the book are these things that you can do on the job. Uh, for example, you can blow the whistle on projects that you think are against the public interest. Like I mentioned, the, some of the workers at Google are blowing the whistle on Google's effort to develop a censored search engine for China. And uh, I don't know if you heard Google management yes. has been defensive about that. They said, oh, well, we're just studying it. We're not, we haven't really committed to doing it. So there's some workers there blowing the whistle on a project that's against the interest of, of people. And you can also channel useful inside information to groups and individuals who are working for social progress. You can encourage staff get-togethers without management to discuss workplace issues and to coordinate what you might say at the next staff meeting. Uh, 
you can try to overcome your psychological need for the boss's compliments on your work. You can judge your work yourself by very different criteria, not on how much money it makes for the company, but on how it furthers your own goals and makes the world a better place. You can encourage coworkers to take grievances to management collectively rather than individually. If two people, if two employees walk into the boss's office with a complaint, that's much, much, that's much more than twice as powerful as these people walking in individually. You hear what's happening today with the Me Too movement. And yes. what people have been willing to get away with all this time and because they were playing that political game. Now, it may not be the Me Too exactly. movement in every workforce per se, but I mean, the, the elements are the same as far as uh, abuse uh, of power. And, um, sure. yeah, for, for years, it was me alone, which was completely ineffective and powerless. But when it's Me Too, then it has a lot of power because... You've got, uh, you know, many people. It's amazing when you're relying on people for your livelihood, what you'll do. <laughs> and uh, in that movie, yeah, right. a birthday, they show with electrical shocks. That was an old thing that they did where someone was an actor. And, yeah. And the they said, like, experiment. Yeah. An experiment. And if you ask a question and they get it wrong and the guy he says, now you're to administer such and such amount of volts. Okay, if they get the wrong answer and they have the, the guy who's an actor and they zap him and he goes, oh, get me out of here. Get me out of here. <laughs> and it, it's amazing that I think they said two thirds of the people were willing to uh, continue with the, the voltage to the person. And boy, does that, you know, uh, <laughs> mirror the workforce where people are willing to give shot. If you don't if you don't meet the needs of the, the company or the criteria will shock you every day, will make your life miserable and, uh, until we, and you get you out of there. One other question I want to ask you too is as far as, just as far as office workspaces, it seems like today uh, open work environments are something that they, everyone out in the open, right next to you, you're working within millimeters of the other person. They say that it fosters a sense of camaraderie, mm-hmm. but there is nowhere to hide. <laughs> you you know you exactly. scratch your nose and everybody sees it and it's it's something there's no longer cubicles or anything like that and uh part and parcel also you know you would think that if, if everyone want, you, the distribution of power of course is the big guy gets that huge corner office and you get this little tiny workspace and that also reinforces inequality in the workplace but what do you think about the way things are designed uh in the workforce uh, as far as uh, office spaces well, first of all, I think you're right to ask about the design because those designs do reflect the distribution of power in the workplace. People don't think about that, so it's it's already a breakthrough that you're even asking that question. But I, I agree with you. The open workspace and lack of privacy has all the problems you mentioned, but all, it has the additional problem of uh, preventing you from <laughs> critiquing the employer because everybody would hear it like if you want to work with a co-worker to make some change in the workplace you don't want the boss to overhear to overhear that yeah there's nowhere to run and nowhere to hide yeah really but it seems like that's prevalent and it bothers me because um 
<laughs> you know, I just, I never had a good experience doing that, being out in the open like that. And uh, I'm sure a lot of other people don't as, as well. And, uh, but other people who are political, I've noticed they don't mind that somehow. Somehow they're all, they're able to kind of, you know, uh, get on the same page that way. And, uh, but when people are busy working and uh, focusing on just uh, all the tasks at hand, it kind of reminded me of what you were talking about on the subway where people really don't have time for human emotion. It seems to be a weakness in the workplace. If you uh, show real human compassion and emotion and you get away from just your task, you're seen as weak or lazy. Right, right. It's um, business. I remember when I, on the job in one place, I, uh, pointed out to one of the bosses that something that they had done was really immoral. And uh, he said, well, that's just business. <laughs> so he, he separated business from uh, other aspects of life. And if it was business, you were justified in doing anything. There was no uh, question of morality or ethics. That was for the non-business world. Well, the main thing you drive home is the battle that one must fight, you know, to be an independent thinker. That is key. And that it seems to be the only resolve to all this. Be an independent thinker. Show how an honest reassessment, you say, of what it means to be a professional in today's corporate society can be remarkably, uh, remarkably liberating to just assess your whole life once again and say, you know, do I really believe in, in what I'm doing and, and what is the price that I'm willing to pay to be an independent thinker? And those are the things that you drive home. Uh, disciplined Minds, a critical look at salaried professionals and the soul-battering system that shapes their lives. Dr. Jeff Schmidt has been our special guest and Dr. Schmidt was an editor at Physics Today magazine, and he has a PhD in physics from the University of California, Irvine. And can I ask you, what, what are you up to now? Well, I've been working on education stuff uh, here in the District of Columbia. One thing that I focused on was the ESSA plan. Do you know what ESSA is? The Every Student Succeeds Act. This is the huh. federal education law that followed No Child Left Behind. Really? I think you can already see from the names of these laws, No Child Left Behind, Every Student Succeeds Act. Yeah. Um, you can already tell that uh, <laughs> there's some kind of a baloney going on here, but <laughs> every, state, every state and the District of Columbia was required to come up with an education plan under the Every Student Succeeds Act. So I tried to play a role in that here in the District of Columbia. In particular, what they did in the District of Columbia was they set lower academic achievement goals for black students than for white students for the next 22 years. Hmm. And I said, these plans are supposed to be ambitious. I said, you call this ambitious? You're you're setting lower academic achievement goals for kids who haven't even been born yet. How uh, pessimistic is that? So mm. I, I participated in that, and I'm also working on physics instruction 
uh, curriculum, stuff like that. So I'm interested in science education and education in general. It's amazing the agenda that we wake up to every day and we're the last to know, you know, (laughs) we're shown the door and then we wake up, wait a minute, something happened there, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) But it just, uh, it doesn't feel right all the time in the workplace. Something feels wrong. Something feels, uh, you know, pressurized or just kind of, um, as you say, politicized and people know what I'm talking about. We're listening, and uh, and I really recommend this book strongly, Disciplined Minds, a critical look at salaried professionals in the soul-battering system that shapes their lives. You know, while it's, it's terrible, there are people who, you know, they go through all this, they get beat up, battered, look at the clock, and then they think they're going to go off to Florida and play golf the rest of their life, and uh, you don't know what's waiting, you know? You don't know how much time you really have, so it's better to, you know, develop as a person, be a, an independent thinker, and, uh, you know, choose yourself or invest in yourself. And that's certainly what you vouch for and fight for in your book. Appreciate all the work that went into it and appreciate you being on a program. Oh, it's, it's been fun. Thanks, Michael. Our sponsors with over 90 years experience in developing audio electronics, Bayer Dynamics stands for innovative audio products with the highest sound quality and pioneering technology. Two business divisions, consumer and installation, provide tailored solutions for professional and private users. All products are developed in Germany and primarily manufactured by hand, from headphones to microphones and conference and interpretation systems. For more information, please visit north-america.bairdynamic.com. And by Vocal Booth to Go carries a complete line of products and accessories specifically designed for voiceover actors, audio professionals, podcasters, producers, and studio owners to help them get professional results for their clients. It's your go-to place for sound treatment, soundproofing, portable, and mobile vocal booths. Visit VocalBoothToGo.com for more information. And by Hamilton Stands, founded in 1883 in Hamilton, Ohio, Hamilton Stands is the oldest music and instrument stand maker in the world. They offer a broad range of sheet music stands, band and orchestra instrument stands, and combo stands, including mic stands, guitar and keyboard stands, and accessories. In fact, the broadcast you're listening to is made using a Hamilton stage rocker mic stand. Visit HamiltonStands.com. And Oralex Acoustics has one mission. To make you sound your best, thousands of satisfied Oralex customers have experienced improved acoustics along with free expert advice, total sound control products from Oralex, enjoy widespread use among prominent artists, producers, engineers, and corporations worldwide. Remember, it's not your gear, it's the room. Visit Oralex.com for more information. And great audio starts with great gear. And Zoom's 30-year reputation promises quality and affordability. Visit zoom-na.com today for recorders, audio interfaces, effects pedals, and more. We're Zoom, and we're for creators.